There is an agenda, ladies and gentlemen. And it's against people with hate people like me. <laughs> oh, my nose is annoying me to death. But it's all good. In the words of Public Enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. From the Fifth Element Podcast Network, I am Charlie Taylor, and this, this is Boss Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope everybody's had a great week. I've had a pretty calm week, you know, it's been pretty slow, you know, just doing things here and there, it's not nothing much really. I went to London, uh, what was it, like last weekend, sometime last weekend, I think on Friday or Saturday, yeah, but other than that, it's been pretty, been pretty chill, you know, just, uh, just doing everything doing everything at home like I usually do including this so you know it's, uh, it's all it's all good I'm happy other than hay fever there is a definite agenda I ladies and gentlemen I think I think Benadryl is a fraud I, I think it's a fraud I think it's a fraudulent company honestly because I've been uh, there was a my mum came back because she's a pharmacist technician you can't say pharmacist because you know pharmacists get better pay than pharmacist technicians so you have to say pharmacist technician um so as a pharmacist technician, sometimes she just gets stuff, you know, just random stuff that people give back or whatever, and, like, they have to, they're supposed to dispose of them. But sometimes she just brings back some, you know, just random stuff, and she uh, she brought back some hay fever stuff and also some hay fever tablets by Benadryl. I swear, like, for one thing, they say it's for eight hours, right, and it's supposed to kick in around 15 minutes. It don't kick in. It it just don't kick in. Last week when I recorded what's good, it was like uh, I was I had some. I had a I had a, I took a tablet like twenty minutes before I recorded, and if you listen to last week's episode, I sound bunged up. My nose is my nose was disgusting. So I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. I think I I think there's an agenda here, and I think Benadryl is a fraud. I don't think there's anything in those caps. <laughs> I don't think there's anything in those caps, but anyway, rambling's over, I've got hay fever, I'll get over it, it's all good, but anyway, other than that's been a good week, isn't it, so, uh, well, we'll we will get into what's happened during the week, that's what the whole show's about, anyway, uh, but formality before we begin, got the email, got the Facebook, ooh, might not have Facebook anymore, uh, I, saw a, uh, I saw a very interesting, uh, sort of very interesting article today, it was a uh, very, uh, I'm not going to put it in the show, but it's a very long. It was a very long read, but I might I might go back to it and talk about it next week. But anyway, yes, we also have the Facebook, but maybe not for long. Um, <laughs> also have the Twitter as well. It's all there in the description. So if you want to participate in any fashion, hit me up, and we shall accommodate. Let's get into the show. In a week where, boy, it's been a week. <laughs> it's been such a week. I've got so much for a week. Like I could have done so much for this episode. I, uh, I'm surprised I've gotten four. I'm not surprised I've gotten four. I'm surprised I've kept it at four because there's so much I could have talked about. Anyway, so the Tory leadership ballot is going uh, has gone down to five and now four as of today. Rory Stewart is now gone. I think uh, the previous one was Dominic Robb, who looked like. I saw a, I saw like a factoid uh, of you know of all the candidates. Shout out to Sim- uh, Simple Politics and Dominic Raab. It looks like looks like that dude where whenever he's being questioned or he's being grilled, he looks like he wants to punch that person in the face. He doesn't cover it up. His his face looks like he's about to explode. And funny enough, one of the factoids I saw about Dominic Raab was that he's a black belt in karate. I am not surprised at all. <laughs> I am not surprised at all. That dude looks like such a freaking hothead. I'm surprised he hasn't clattered the journalist. I'm really surprised. That is an amazing... He, he, he just looks like a boiling kettle constantly. I bet he watched, I bet he watches Karate Kid rooting for the bad guys. He looks like one of those dudes anyway. But yes, uh, it's, gone, it's now gone down to four as of this recording. Uh, it actually happened a couple, couple hours ago. Rory Stewart is now gone. Which leaves us with, well, probably, 
apart from Dominic Ra, probably the worst four possible. Like Sajid Javid isn't isn't that bad. He's just he's still bad, but he's he's not as bad as the he's the lesser of the four, of of the top three, which I find the most toxic people on earth. Apart there's not named Farage. Boris Johnson, who is just scum, pretty much. He's, he's just scum. And Michael Gove and Jeremy Hunt. I've talked about those two many, 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 many times on the podcast, on the student radio show, so I'm not going to even bother. They're just the worst. We're, we're going to go downhill. We're going downhill. It's, it's, it's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the apocalypse. Uh, anyway, continuing on, the legendary Paul Crowther, if you don't know his name, he is that legend. He is the legend that milkshaked. Nigel Farage, a couple of weeks ago, he has pled guilty for common assault, <laughs> and he actually has to pay Farage's suit cleaning bill, which is which is just amazing. I actually saw I actually saw a post the other day of just the amazing double standard I've seen so far. Actually, do you remember a few years ago when Ed Miliband got clattered with an egg, and we all laughed at him, and now that Nigel Farage and other right wingers are getting milkshaked, people are talking about uh and and obviously there was that Joe Brand thing where she where she jokingly said it was a uh, we should use battery acid. Guys, we she she's a comedian. We're not nobody's gonna use battery acid. It's 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 that's just a that's just a whole that's a whole that's a whole can of worms and I can't be able to scan to. So yeah, he has to pay Farage's cleaning bill, a suit cleaning bill, which is a, a little bit, a little bit, just really. And funny enough, Farage is on, you know, uh, all those uh, money claims of being given handed money from sketchy places. So I just find that amazing that he has to, Mr. Paul Crowther has to pay the suit cleaning bill. Arctic permafrost in the Canadian Arctic is actually thawing seventy years sooner than predicted. Uh, don't know, don't know, don't know what you're going to do with that information. I mean. It's, it's kind of just one of those things when it comes to... I don't want to call it climate change anymore. I want to call it something else because climate change is obviously just a dead word to people. You say climate change and people just tune out. So I feel like it needs to be reworded in some form or fashion. But yeah, that's just permafrost. When permafrost starts thawing, yeah, that's uh, that's something. Uh, Donald Trump still thinks the Central Park Five did it, which, I mean, I'm not surprised. I just... I, I'm, I'm just... I don't. I don't know. It's just. I. I don't know. I don't know how you got to that conclusion. I really don't know. But then again, it's Donald Trump. Who cares? Uh, three Russians. This came in today, actually. Uh, three of as of this recording. Three Russians and one Ukrainian are charged with the sh- with shooting down MH17. If you don't remember MH17, the Malaysia Airlines flight that mysteriously disappeared. I think I remembered watching a, a special of air crash investigation. Air crash investigation. And, you know, I watched it because I really wanted to know what happened. And basically what they did, as most National Geographic shows do, they show all the impossibilities and then and then a couple of experts give their guess and then the the show ends. So it's just non-conclusive all the time. And they took away my, my thought, which is I thought the plane disintegrated in some form or fashion. Not like a, you know, ray gun disintegration like a cartoon, but just dismantled and was just spread out across the sea into like itty bitty pieces. But obviously that was uh, taken, uh, debunked. And now they're being, and now three Russians and one Ukrainian being charged. So that's interesting. Homophobic and transphobic hate crimes have surged in England and Wales. LGBT hate crime per capita has risen by 144% between 2013 and 14 and uh, uh, 2017 to 18. Uh, police recorded eleven thousand six hundred crimes, more than uh, more than doubling from four thousand six hundred during this period. That's for uh, transgender crimes. So yeah, clearly from the eight minute, from the six to eight minute uh, in a week, where you know I could have talked about all of these in in large detail. So what am I going to talk about in large detail? So we start with I'm going to start with sport actually, because I just wanted to. I just wanted to basically re rejig rejig my position on the NBA right now because obviously last week I talked about the NBA finals and obviously now I think the night it, the night the episode dropped or the night I recorded the Toronto Raptors won the championship so you know that was kind of, that that's, that that me talking about that was dead immediately <laughs> as soon as it came out so I thought I would I thought I would just rejig my position because I have rejigged my position. I've been thinking about it too. 
I've been thinking about it from a to, from a uh, very microscopic perspective and more of a cultural perspective, actually. Thinking about you know how, I mean, I'm, I've been correct. You know, in the past week, every time I see a picture of the Toronto Raptors parade, they always have to throw in a picture of Drake for whatever reason. He was on the bus, ladies and gentlemen. He was there. He was he was in he he was on the bus with the team as if he dropped forty like. I don't understand his participation here. I really don't understand it. But anyway, I was correct in talking about that. I was correct in how, you know, people and social media and NBA Twitter and NBA social media have ridden this Drake shit to death. And obviously the news in the NBA circles have been kind of overridden by free agency, more notably Andy Davis finally going to the Lakers and that trade happening. Uh, I think as as it's recording today, Mike Conley has been traded from Memphis to Utah, which is a good, which is a interesting trade. I'd like to see how that how that pans out. I like Mike Conley as a player, and yeah. So I was I was talking about it from a very microscopic perspective and a cultural perspective. But the goat Kareem Abdul-Jabbar hopped on uh, the Guardian to talk about uh, Toronto Raptors and looked at it in a different way than I have, and I kind of he's kind of helped me change my mind on this and how you know I didn't I didn't really see the Toronto Raptors winning as anything, but I feel like we should put some weight on it. So let's put some weight on it via Mr. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So let's get into this. This is called "Why the Toronto Raptors Title uh, Title is a Victory for the NBA, Canada, dot dot dot, and the U.S." So let's get into it. Folklore tells us that if you can see your initials in a spider's web, you have a good fortune ahead. Maybe the NBA saw their initials in the hoop net last Thursday because the Toronto Raptors uh, championship victory that night could be an early prognosticator of a brighter future for the professional basketball worldwide. worldwide. At the very least, it could encourage the expansion of NBA teams to include other countries from the, from south of the border and elsewhere, leading to the league evolving into a more international competition. As the Borg would say, resistance is futile. Nice little Star Trek quote there. Uh, the winds of change are already upon us. Despite California's Golden State Warriors being the hometown favourites, quote-unquote, it was Canada's quote-unquote visitor team that most Americans were rooting for in the finals. According to a recent poll, the majority of Americans in every state except California, Nevada and Hawaii were cheering for the Raptors to win. This is not a slight against the excellent Warriors, who may just be the victims of their own deserved success, in that people prefer rooting for the underdog. When it comes to sports, Americans don't seem to share the xenophobia excuse me, and nationalist fervor of the current White House administration. If that welcoming spirit continues to spread, we may see changes during uh, changes beyond sports that extend to cultural and diplomatic areas. In 1996, economist Thomas Friedman proposed the, quote, Golden Arches Theory of Conflict, which suggested that no two countries with a McDonald's franchise could would go to war with each other because countries with middle classes large enough to sustain a McDonald's have reached a level of prosperity and global integration that makes warmongering risky and unpalatable to its people. Okay, let's take a pause. That is an amazing theory. That is an amazing theory. I really want to look more into that. That is an ama- That is absolute G of a theory. Big up, Thomas Friedman. That is a banging theory. Anyway, continuing on. Uh, of course, that doesn't hold up in reality for a few countries, but a similar basic ideal applies here. Countries sharing an NBA franchise are more likely to also share cultural awareness, and that can lead to us focusing on our similarities without fearing our differences. Sports has often been a trailblazer for, enlighten- for an enlightened social agenda. Ibit Haj Mohammed won, uh, fencing, won a fencing bronze medal at the 2016 Olympics and also became the first woman to represent the United States at the Games while wearing a hijab. The so-called ping-pong diplomacy of the early 1970s in which US and Canada exchanged ping-pong players is credited with easing tensions between the countries and making President Richard Nixon's visit to China possible. Really? Ping-pong players? Okay. Anyway, anyway, continue on. Uh, the dozens of professional athletes... I'm learning a lot for this uh, from this article, anyway. Uh, the dozens of professional athletes who have also... who have taken stands against uh, uh, social justice in the US, regardless of the cost of their careers, shows us 
that we have many athletes prepared to be international ambassadors. We already have ambassadors from other nations in the NBA from 2018-19 season hosted 108 international players from 42 countries and territories, representing 24.5 of players in the league. Every one of the 30 teams had at least one international player. The influx of these exceptional players from other countries have resulted in a high level competition, forcing American-born aspirants to step up their games. There is no entitlement in the NBA. It is the ultimate meritocracy. Your value is measured by your performance by performance alone. And if we increase the pool of competitors, the entire game will be elevated even higher. This is evident from examining the Raptors roster, which includes Serge Ibaka, Congo in Spain, Pascal Siakam from Cameroon, Marcus Sol from Spanish, and OG Ananobi, born in London to Nigerian parents. Big up OG. Uh, one of the assistant coaches, Patrick Mutombo, was born in Democratic Republic of Congo. The team president, Masai Ujiri, was born in the UK and grew up in Nigeria. Nick Nurse, the head coach, developed his coaching career in Europe. One of the obstacles to, cre- uh, to growing the game's popularity has been that not all countries have a pipeline of educating young talent in the fundamentals of basketball. Americans have many opportunities to play organised basketball almost as soon as they can walk. For some other countries, the catch-22 is that a sport has to be popular to get the resources to develop children's skills, but it can't become popular without raising children with those skills. The NBA has been on a fervent mission to... He said fervor twice now. He said fervor and fervent. I've, I've really heard those words put in twice in a... Uh, in an article anyway, a uh, fervent mission to expand the league internationally through a variety of promising programs. Since 01, uh, the, they have conducted basketball camps in 27, 27 countries on six continents. In February, they announced that they had established a 12-team basketball African league that will begin in 2020. I participated in Basketball Without Borders Africa 2018 camp in Johannesburg and saw firsthand a level of enthusiasm for the sport. Uh, I'm going to continue to the last paragraph just to finish up. The same spirit of inclusiveness can energise basketball even more. Distance keeps a global NBA from being practical right now, but certainly Mexico City and Monterey franchises are possible. The NBA is already testing the viability by by establishing a new G League development franchise uh, in Mexico City. This kind of expansion will make the sport more exciting while at the same time countering the kind of negative characterization of other cultures and people that have that has been on the rise recently in America and beyond. So this is a very fascinating article from a from a many different angles, you know. From the fact that from a competition standpoint, I truly believe that, you know, how many other countries have come through there have been many great players coming through. Shout out to Giannis and Kumpo, who's who's you know Greek and uh, forget where his parents come from in Africa. Apologies for that. I don't know where I don't, his parents are African in some fashion. In some fashion, I forget which country though, but they are Greek as well. Hence why he's called the Greek freak. But um, yeah, he's he's you know he'll be he might be MVP. He he should be MVP. I'm still waiting for that bloody awards to come through. I don't know why they do at the end of the season, uh, end of the uh, end of the actual season, not the regular season, because the regular season award. Why do you care? I don't care anymore. You know, I, I, I won't watch it. I'll just look up and go. Okay, cool. He's finally MVP validation. Uh, anyway, yeah, he might be MVP. He might be, you know, from a trophy standpoint, the best player, the best player in the world. He, and he's and he's Greek African. I really should look up where in Africa because I don't want to. I don't want to just say African because that's just that's just <laughs> that's just very you know uh, 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 what's the word? What's the word? It's very dismissive. You know what I mean? It's very very dismissive. Okay, I got it. His parents are from Lagos, Nigeria. The okay. He's Greek Nigerian. Okay, he might be the best player in the world, and that isn't you know that's not the first time that a international player has won MVP, and it won't be the last. And the fact that twenty five, practically twenty five percent of the players are international, that is that's an amazing achievement. That's an amazing statistic. There is no other. Maybe baseball, you know, from a American's perspective, but I think the numbers on that fashion are either I don't I don't really know where the numbers are for that, but they have international players as well, and I think the NBA is in out of the out of the four major leagues in the U.S. Basketball is the most is the most global. 
it's the most globalized. It has the ability to be global. Baseball is a close second, and the other two are just nowhere near. But it's fa- it's, it's fascinating how you know uh, the NBA are putting an actual agenda on this, and you know it takes away. Even though it takes away, this uh, article kind of shies away from talking about the Raptors. Even though you know it says that. Uh, talking about people like Serge Ibaka and Pascal Siakam, how they come from Africa, they are African, Cameroon and uh, Congo, Congo, Spain, respectively. That is a that is an indication that there is a there is a significant rise coming through, and to have people like Ibaka, like Siakam, to win the championship, that will inspire someone. That will inspire somebody in Africa, in Spain in Congo and Cameroon, that will inspire someone at some point, and there will be an influx. And this is also more of a, this is more of a societal thing as well, where it praises multiculturalism, and as a product of multiculturalism, I believe that it is essential for not just sport, you know, obviously this this is more about competition and how you know, international basketball is right, is when they go to the NBA, they rise the comp, they, they upgrade the competition, you know, the, the American players, it's not, it's not as easy to get in now, because there are more, there's more competition, there's people from Africa, there's people from Europe coming through, there's people from Australia coming through, you know, so people from Brazil, from South America, they're coming through Canada as well, a big boss Canada, Canada have a boss international team right now. They're coming up. They're coming up, up, up. Uh, one, of the, one of the players, RJ Barrett, is going to be number three in the in, number three in the draft tomorrow. You know, so as a record, as a this recording anyway, uh, tonight as the as the episode drops. So this this is a great thing from all angles, and from a again from a societal perspective, I believe multiculturalism is a great thing to teach other people about cultures, to de, uh, to diffuse some fears that people of America and even of, you know, Britain and other countries, uh, Europe, European countries, this will, this is a, it's, it's, it's similar to that stand that I gave you about Mo Salah and how hate crime and racism in Liverpool has decreased simply because Mo Salah is a beast. That is a product of multiculturalism and will not just inspire people from Egypt, but some people from Liverpool will say Mo Salah is my favourite player and he's Muslim and that's something, and that's something great. So big on multiculturalism, pretty much. <laughs> and this uh, is, is, again, as a product of multiculturalism, I'm all for it. we move on to uh, I do actually have two sport topics but I'm going to move on to life actually because this is um, this is an interesting topic about uh, Hong Kong I've, I've, I've seen the news you know if you've, if you've watched the news a bit uh, this past week or the past couple of weeks anyway there are there have been obviously things going on in Hong Kong very a lot of protests people being arrested and I just wanted to talk about it since um since the mass protests have been so huge and so uh, so groundbreaking, from especially in Hong Kong, anyway. So this is uh, what are the Hong Kong protests about. It's just a basically an explainer by Lily Kuo in Beijing in Yuna, uh, Verna Yu in Hong Kong uh, via the Guardian. Uh, Hong Kong has been rocked by protests as hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people demonstrated at a weekend uh, against. Legal against legal changes that would make it easier to extradite people to China from the semi-autonomous city. This is what the ex- amended extradition law would do. Why is it so controversial? So the question is, what is the proposed extradition law? Hong Kong's amended extradition law would allow the extradition of suspects to mainland China for the first time. Supporters say uh, the amendments are key to ensuring the city does not become a criminal refuge, but critics worry Beijing will use the law to extradite political opponents and others to China where their legal protections cannot be guaranteed. The government claims that the claims to push to change the law 
which would also apply to Taiwan and Macau, stems from the killing last year of a Hong Kong woman while she was in Taiwan with her boyfriend. Authorities in Taiwan suspect the woman's boyfriend, who remains in Hong Kong, but cannot try him because no extradition agreement is in place. Uh, why are Hong Kongers so... Is that actually how they say it? Hong Kongers? Hong Kongese? I don't know. Uh, so, why are they so angry about the bill? Many Hong Kongers fear the proposed extradition law will be used by authorities to target political enemies. They worry the new legislation spells the end of the one country, two systems policy, eroding the civil rights enjoyed by Hong Kong residents since the handover of sovereignty from the UK to China in 1997. And I'm going to, I'm going to try I, I recommend watching a vox borders vox borders episode on hong kong because uh, the the host of that i forget his name the, the, he does a great explainer of the of hong kong in of uh, overall you know as it as uh talking about it as it was previously a british colony what it's become what it is culturally compared to china it's obviously very different culturally when you go to hong kong it's very very different to china so give that a watch uh, look it up and uh, you will you will gain you will gain a lot from from that and when you compare it to this when you link it to this the protests that are going on is very evident of why they're doing this anyway Continuing on, uh, many attending the protests on Sunday said that they could not trust China as it had often used non-political crimes to target government critics and say and, and said they also feared Hong Kong officials would not be able to reject, reject Beijing's request. Uh, what, do, what do the bill supporters say? Supporters say legislation is a necessary plug to a loophole in the current law and protect Hong Kong from becoming a haven for international fugitives. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting way of saying it, but if you're talking about, we're talking about China here, <laughs> we're talking about China here, you know, they're, they're not going to stop at just plugging the loophole, you know, I mean, they're going to do so much more to add on to it, anyway, continuing on, how much is Beijing pushing for it? Hong Kong officials have repeatedly said the bill has has not come from the central government in Beijing. However, Beijing has voiced its backing for the changes. China's foreign ministry said in a statement on Monday that it firmly supports the Hong Kong government passing the law. Okay, interesting. So they're not there, but they're showing support. Hmm, okay. Stomach fishy over there. Uh, what are the wider fears about Beijing's influence in Hong, on Hong Kong? Many in the protests on Sunday said that they felt overwhelmed by a sense of helplessness in the face of mainland China's increasing political, economic and cultural influence in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's top political leader is not elected by ordinary voters but by a 1,200 strong election committee accountable to Beijing. Half of its legislature are cho chosen through indirect electoral systems that favour pro-Beijing figures. Aha, okay. So we're seeing, so we're seeing what's going on here. To that, you know, just there may be a committee there, but Beijing's clearly behind this in some way, some some way. So I want to get into another article here, again by Werner Yu contributing to it, and also Emma Graham uh, Harrison. Their kids, not rioters. New generation of protesters bring Hong Kong to a standstill. This was posted Sunday, Sunday sixteenth. Uh, the previous one, the explainer one, was I think a little bit before. So this is about a sea. Of, well, let's get into it anyway. A sea of protesters, most most dressed in black and carrying white flowers of mourning, have swept through central Hong Kong to denounce the controversial extradition law demand uh, that the city's leader Carrie Lam steps down. Organisers claim that nearly two million people, two million people, turned out on Sunday, which would make the demonstration the largest in Hong Kong history. Probably that's probably the largest in Asia, surely. Surely, surely the numbers have to be like up there. Uh, they poured in from all over the city in numbers so large that the march route had to be extended and then widened, halting all traffic outside government headquarters. Echoes of protest songs, hymns and chants bounced off the surrounding high rises, high rises as darkness fell and then into the evening. Hours after the uh, early afternoon... Sorry. Hours after the early afternoon... <laughs> start of the protest which remained peaceful throughout so that's the thing there is no violence here there is no violence here there's it's, it's peaceful protest that's all it is and actually i saw a i think i saw a tweet where after the protest the, the protesters cleaned up so there was no rubbish left 
That is amazing. That's amazing to think about. That's amazing to think about that they have the wherewithal to also clean up after themselves. Big up Hong Kong. Uh, it was an extraordinary show of grassroots political power in a city where residents cannot choose their leaders but are free to take the streets to denounce them. Veteran activists with years of protest experience walked beside novices who had little interest in politics until the crisis flared up. Quote, Before this week, I had never been on a protest, said 28-year-old Lau. But I am a teacher, and I realised if I didn't come, I wouldn't be able to face my students. This this is their future. Like many others, she had been unnerved by the arrest of activists and did not want her full name printed. Lam Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, Hong Kong's uh, chief executive, had agreed to suspend the extradition bill after a week of protests, perhaps the most serious government climb down in the face of public pressure since a security law was dropped in 2003. But if she hoped to defuse public anger before Sunday's march, she badly misjudged the city's mood. Uh, quote, Suspending the law but not cancelling it is like holding a knife over someone's head and saying, I'm not going to kill you now, but you could, uh, but you could do it any time, said Betty, an 18-year-old protester who just finished school. We're fighting for our freedom. I'm going to stop there. There's plenty more in the article to talk about. It's, it's actually a very lengthy article, to be honest. Uh, so if you want to read that, fifthhandmadonk.uk if you want to read that. And I just wanted to give the overall, just the overall landscape of what's going on. I find it fascinating that a teacher actually participated in the protests, which makes me think about the protests we had here recently, where I think it was school kids. I forgot in what level of level of school, probably high school, secondary school, I guess. I'm, t- I'm taking a stab in the dark. I, f- I forget off the top of my head. Talking about they they obviously protested about climate change, which which shall be renamed, <laughs> as I said before. I wonder if teachers supported that. I wonder if teachers of the schools, you know, when the school children left the school or didn't come to school, where were the teachers in that in that? protest i wonder if they participated or did they or did they just sit on the fence or did they completely reject the protest and say you should come in otherwise you'll get suspended did they threaten suspension did they threaten detention what did they do i want to know what the teacher's response were because when when it's kind of like a similar thing where you know it's people who are young and also in, in hong kong's case probably of all of all ages, not just young people. Obviously, there is a grassroots thing here, and there are several young people leading this uh, protest, leading these protests in Hong Kong, under the age of thirty, and also the secondary school ones. Obviously, people younger than twenty, um, probably young, and um, probably around twenty-five as well. People talking about climate change. If we're going to throw in the uh, what's it called? What's it called? The Extinction Rebellion, a protest that this uh, the protested the same thing. I just wonder where the teachers were on this. I wonder where the officials were on this in terms of the UK protests as well. Because obviously in Hong Kong, everyone's everyone's on board. Teachers are on board, and they said he said he couldn't look at his couldn't look at his students if he didn't do it. So I wonder where the teachers are on that on that case for the UK teachers anyway. Some something worth thinking about. I just. Uh, there's no point protesting if the people above you don't protest as well. So let's continue with... Let's, 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 dip, in, let's dip back into sport, because I wanted to get back to this Casa Semenya conversation obviously a few episodes ago i talked about Cassius Menya, who is a south african athlete uh, track and field athlete um, athletics athlete <laughs> uh, track and field and she obviously was given was handed down a rule by the IAAF which wasn't specifically to Cassius Menya, but it clearly was to only Cassius Menya because of her higher testosterone levels compared to other female athletes. Go back to the episode, I think it was two or three weeks ago, if you want to listen to that. 
but I also I just wanted to revisit it because she has recently given some quotes on it, some hard quotes on it. So I just wanted to revisit, it, to be honest, and uh, just to uh, uh, just give an update on what's going on, basically. So this is Cassius Semenya accuses IWF of using her as a quote guinea pig experiment. This is by Sean Ingle of the Guardian. Uh, Cassius Semenya has accused Athletics governing body uh, of using her body as quote as a human guinea pig experiment, unquote, by forcing her to take medication to control her testosterone levels. The double Olympic 800-meter champion stepped up her attacks on the International Association of Athletics Federations after the Court of Arbitration for Sport releases a 163-page judgment explaining why it decided to rule against her in a landmark case last month. Semenya is appealing against Cass. Uh, Cass's decision, which requires athletes with differences in sexual development, DSD, to take hormone suppressants to lower their testosterone below 5 nmol per litre. I think that's, I, 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 don't, I don't know what that measurement is. I don't know what nmol l is. So look it up if you want. Uh, if they want to compete internationally between 400 metres to a mile. Funny enough, that's the, that's the events Caster Semenya takes. How weird. Weird is not 100 metres. Weird is not 10,000 metres. Just 400 metres in a mile. Weird. Weird how it's just in those, in those, uh, in between those disciplines. Uh, And she made it quite clear that whatever happens to, uh, whatever happens, she would never again take medication, something she was forced to do between 2010 and 2015. Quote, the IAAF used me in the past as a human guinea pig to experiment with how the medication they required me to take would affect my testosterone level, she said. Even though the hormonal drugs made me, made me feel constantly sick, the IWF now wants to enforce even stricter thresholds with unknown health consequences. I will not allow the IWF to use me and my body again, she added. But I am concerned that other female athletes will feel compelled to let the IAAF drug them and test the effectiveness and negative health effects of different hormonal drugs. This cannot be allowed to happen. Among revelations in Cass's full report are the IAAF did argue that Semenya and other athletes with similar DSD conditions should be regarded as, wow, quote, biological males. Wow, I did not know that. That's bad. Consider them as biological males. (sighs) Jesus Christ, that stings. Okay. Which contradicts the I, uh, with what which contradicts what the IWF told the Guardian in February. <sighs> stop right there. Let's stop right there. Let me take let me take a moment. Wow, they considered they basically said consider her a male. That's crazy. So if you're gonna do that, why don't you give her? Why don't you just put her in the male events? I know this is this isn't the point. But why might as well do that instead? If you if you don't want her to dominate, then just then say you have to go in the men's events instead. Instead of making her take this clearly debilitating and uh, dangerous medication. If you gave them two options, then then there, w- there would be something. At least there's options, you know what I mean? But you've given her no option. You said, don't compete unless you take these medications. And she's clearly saying, stating that these medications are dangerous. Why would you take them? Why would you take him? But call her a Regard them as a biological male. Wow. Wow, that's something. Anyway, continuing on. The full report also reveals that Semenya told the judges that testosterone suppressing medication in the past had affected her mental and physical health. In addition, and in addition to the feelings of sickness she endured, quote, suffered from... There's a, there should be a comma there. Sickness she endured, suffered, quote, suffered from regular fevers and had constant internal abdominal pain. However, Cass also explains in more detail, while it ruled in favour of the IAAF, it accepted that the high testosterone in female athletes confers significant advantages in size, strength and power from puberty onwards and therefore ruled the policy was, quote, unnecessary, reasonable and proportionate to ensure fair competition in women's sport. Uh, there's there's a whole paragraph here on X Y and, uh, and you know genes and that and I I just I just won't know how to how to 
unpack that, so I'm just I'm just not going to. But yes, uh, let's continue the last paragraph, actually. The IWS said it welcomed the publication of the report, quote, having the arguments of all parties in the public domain will help to foster greater understanding of this complex issue. It added, sport is one of only a few narrow sectors of society in which biology has to trump gender identity to ensure fairness. Right, again, again. So, if you're going to say that, either say, take the medication... Or hop onto the men's events. Now, I don't think she should hop onto the men's events because she's a woman and she is given a genetic. This is a genetic gift. This isn't something that she gained off of a performance enhancing drug. She wasn't given a drug here that she had high testosterone levels. This is a genetic gift. Like I said before, like I said last time when when I talked about this specific when I talked about this topic. This is this is basically telling Michael Phelps to chop his arms off because he has too long arms. That, Michael Phelps, his arms, is a genetic gift. Paula Radcliffe's lungs, genetic gift. Do you see where I'm getting at? The things that we praise for to people, uh, LeBron James's vertical, whatever, whatever gift you want to, whatever gift you want to give. Uh, what was that? What was that cricker that had the that could fast bowl just a stupid amount because he had because he was double jointed. I forget his name. It was from back in the day, like ten years ago or whatever. And people were whinging about that. That is a genetic gift. What do you want him to do? Cut off a joint? Take a joint out? Have surgery to take off a joint? You have to deal with these things. These are genetic gifts. These are not things that they have gotten illegally. They were born with this. Casa Semenya was born with this. You are te- you are basically telling athletes that genetics don't matter. If you have a significant advantage over the people, over the people, we're going to curb you for no reason. We're going to curb you for the quote unquote for the competition. Because some people think it's unfair. People like Lindsay Sharp, who regularly comes sixth to eighth in races maybe sometimes gets fourth. It's rubbish. You're bitching about nothing. You're bitching because you can't keep up. This is basically saying to... Uh, this is like... Say say from the previous conversation, we're talking about the NBA, right? Let's say... Let's say the NBA said Giannis Antetokounmpo couldn't play because he has too long arms. Because he is, because he is, has freakishly long arms. His wingspan is absurd. So that's that's basically saying you can't play in the NBA because you have freakishly long arms. You have longer arms than the average. That's not how this works. That is not how this works. This is a matter of genetics, and you can't, you can't, you can affect genetics if you want to, but I don't know why you would. For the sake of competition, that's bullshit. This is this is not for the sake of competition. This is for I don't know what this is for. To treat someone different, to tell them they're different. I don't know. You're setting a very very dangerous. You have already set a very dangerous precedent here, and calling and regarding them as a biological male is just that is a scummy quote. That is a scummy quote. But anyway. Big up Casa Semenya, keep up the fight, and keep doing your things, keep racing. So we move on to the final topic of this episode, film and TV, and I, I just saw this, uh, I just saw this article and I just found it very interesting actually, so, well, like I do with old articles. But this one was just a, you know, it, it didn't come up on my t- timeline or anything. I was just searching for, I was just searching for things to read, and it just piqued my interest. So, this is head of ITV drops all male writing teams. Now I find this super important. So let's get into this. Uh, ITV's head of comedy has said she will no longer commission any show with an all male writing team or one that has one that has just a quote-unquote token woman 
Saskia Schuster took action after an audit of her shows revealed an awful lot of all-male teams and a, quote, significant lack of women in scripted commissions. She said for every five scripts sent her by a man, she would receive just one by a woman. Quote, too often the writing room is not sensitively run. It can be aggressive and slightly bullying, Schuster told Diverse Festival on Monday. According to the BBC, where she featured in a panel discussion titled, quote, Why Employing More Women Writers in Comedy Matters. Uh, After consulting writers, producers, agents and performance, Schuster whose commissions include Benidorm and Celebability, she said changed, uh, said she changed her terms of commission and refused any offering writ- uh, written exclusively by men. Quote, I won't commission anything with an all-male writing team. Writer Brona C. Titley, who works on Celebability, told the festival, if you have the same type of writers in, the ter- in terms of race or sexual orientation or gender, then you're only uh, getting one kind of joke. Schuster has pushed for equality in comedy for writing for years in her role in ITV. She founded the initiative Comedy 5050 in February 2018 after com- becoming inspired by an event about gender equality in the industry at BAFTA and realising that as the comedy commissioner at ITV, it's up to me to drive the narrative. She's discovered female writers were often at a disadvantage because men usually already had more writing credits because it was hard to get find producers who get their voices, quote-unquote get, and develop their scripts and the fact that female writers often don't thrive as the lone female voice in the writing room. So yeah, I find this genuinely fascinating and actually very close to what I have, what I've been currently doing in the background, in my in my screenwriting side of, of, of life I actually was writing up a little a little statistical I guess a little statistical package of just highlights of what's going on in the industry basically in the UK and also in the US so I want to give you a bit of a bit of what's going on there so this is this is for the UK in women right for UK women right so I put, while their overall representation in uh, numbers in film and TV is at a good place, which is about 40-50%, uh, they're overrepresented in, well, you guess, makeup, hairdressing, wardrobe, and costume. Excuse the aeroplane. Even though they represent 30% of the fi- UK film and TV directing workforce, they are not getting 30% of the work according to Creative Industries Federation. The overall w- female workforce in the creative industries earn £1,500 less than the average and around 3000 left less than their male counterparts so there is a lot there is a lot of ground that could be covered here in terms of in in terms of inclusion and diversity let me give you let me give you one more this is this is via the us but it is very i find it very telling of what can happen in the uk in not just film but also in tv as well so here we go. Films with this is from this is from the Hollywood Diversity Report done by the UCLA College of Social Sciences. I urge you to give it a read. They do one every year, and it's absolutely amazing the statistical knowledge they have uh, they have on deck uh, on that report. So, thirty two point nine percent of female of film leads are women. Uh, film directors twelve point six percent. Film writers also twelve point six percent. This is in the US. Listen to this quote, films with casts that were from 31 to 40% minority enjoyed the highest median global box office receipts, while those with majority minority casts posted the highest return on investment. Okay, so that means the more the, the more diverse, the better, basically. Uh, well, if they're in that sweet spot of 31-40%, is, is, you, you get better box office, basically. Now listen to this as a contrast. Films with the most racially and ethnically homogenous casts were the poorest performers. That is saying now, and that's not just that. That's not just white. That's not just white writers. That's not just write, white writing rooms. Obviously, it's uh, ra- racially and ethnically uh, homogenous. But I can also, but you can also throw in gender as well. Having an all male cast might not help. Having a woman on your writing squad might help or one or two or three you know having a the more diverse and this also links to this this goes back to talking about sports multiculturalism how it 
how it's good, how it spreads the how it spreads the love, it spreads the competition. And obviously, in this case, in terms of the film and TV industry, not just the UK and the US, but all around the world, the men have a better have a better chance. They have they also have, they have a better chance from a grassroots perspective, going from somewhere like university. In my course specifically, there were it was majority men. There was a there was a few, there was a few women here and there, but it wasn't it wasn't fifty fifty. Let's say that you know, so it this the numbers don't add up. Basically, the numbers don't add up, and it's something that needs to be addressed because I believe that there are there are female writers that are just as good. There, there are. There, there are female writers that are just as good. We wouldn't have a show like Insecure without someone like Issa Rae. Someone who has done the work and has put in the work. If you, This is how it should, you know, in a, in a perfect world, you know, if you put the work in, then you should be able to... <laughs> then you should be able to get the opportunities that everyone else has. But obviously that's not the case. So, with that said, big up, um, big up Ms. Schuster, who is doing this, you know, on a comedy, on a comedy level, but I think this should happen on every level, doesn't matter what genre, it should happen, there should be female writers in every writer's room, there should be a, it should be, it shouldn't be racially homogenous either, it shouldn't be an all-white writing room, it shouldn't be an all-black writing room, I may, I may be pro- I may be pro-multiculturalism here, as as it's as it'll probably be the title of this bloody episode because I've talked about it so much. But it shouldn't be just one. It shouldn't be just one. It shouldn't be just one gender. It shouldn't be just one. It shouldn't be just one. Uh, 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 shouldn't be just one ethnicity. It should be. A, it should be a melting pot. It should be a lot. It should be everyone's. It should be multiple angles to go at. The more angles you have, especially from a creative perspective, from writing. If you're writing something and you're writing with your, your perspective, then that's fine. But if you're doing something like a comedy sketch show, where a lot of where it's like a lot of situations going on, you know, in a, in a classic sketch show, how many sketches there are in a, in a classic sketch show? Tons, you know. So with all those small stories, you can. You can pick, and if you have a diverse writing room, you can pick from so many brains, and so many angles. And in that, and and when that happens, the fruits will bear to be a great piece of work, and a great piece of art. So with that said, we shall end the show. <laughs> that was quite, that was, that was quite heavy, wasn't it? That was, that was good. I like that. I like that finish. <laughs> Pat on the back, Charlie. Uh, yeah, so that's that's the end of the show. Uh, that's been most good. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. And you know, just the as, as a overall message, you know, just include, include. That's all, that's all that's all it is. Include and if you include some, if you include someone that is not you and doesn't look like you or doesn't think like you then your creative endeavour will be all the better. And I've experienced that firsthand. So anyway, that's that's been the show. Shout to Vanilla, Too Much, that's the intro and the outro. Interludes, Vista by Poldor. Their websites will be added in the description. Be sure to check their music out. Shout out to Chill Hot Music for the ability to use their music. From the Fifth Heaven Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Taylor. It's been most good. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your week ahead. I'll see you next time. Take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.